And I don't know if Paul usually does this, but I'm going to pray because I need it, definitely. So, Father, um, thanks for this morning. Thanks for gathering us together. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit's here and present and um, leads us each. Uh, pray the words we say today are the words that you intend. To the name pray. Amen. So Paul's asked me to do this a few times. I always like doing it, but um, he usually says, Spence, I want you to speak on X. Well, this time he gave me carte blanche. He just said, speak on anything you want to. So I got sort of excited that I'm going to come up with a topic, and then I read the next part in Nehemiah and decided that was the topic. You know, I think God had other plans, so that was cool. So we're going to do Nehemiah 5 today, which is just the next section we're going through. But um, the reason that I saw that passage and I thought this is really what we've got to do is that my I've got a kind of chapter in my life that lined up really closely to it, and it was kind of this pivotal chapter. So I'm going to do the thing that makes me the most nervous and tell you a little bit about my story. Um, and what happened was, uh, so I was raised in a pretty typical life in North Carolina. I, I grew up pretty much obsessed with cars and boats and things that went fast, and um, that was pretty much what I wanted out of life. And uh, I got a little clip, but I don't, I don't think it's going to play, is it? We're going to see. Well, here, we, we'll just go with it like this. Then. Just go with it. If I get it working. All right. If he gets it working, we'll play it. But have y'all heard the country song that says, uh, let's see, if I win the lottery or I had the money of Warren Buffett, I could buy a boat and a truck to pull it and a Yeti loaded down with silver bullet. Have y'all heard this country song? All right. Y'all need to listen to more country music. Um, in my life, for my family, it was probably would be have Miller Lite and a Yeti and not, you know, Silver Bullet. But it was kind of the same deal. And my dad today still is on a fish, fish, golf, hunt, fish, fish, fish rotation in his life. So that's, that's how I grew up. So I kind of thought if I ever got to a point that I had a, a boat and a truck and, you know, enough time to go and use them, I would have everything I wanted in life. All right. So I was, that was kind of my focus. Uh, Sometime in my mid-30s, I sort of got to that point, you know, down here. We had a house, a little bit of water access, and we had a boat, and had enough free time to enjoy it. I had some boys coming, you know, and, and I'm like, how much better can it be? Um, but what I realized, do, do we still have video, Matt? All right. We, we may just skip the clip altogether. But what I realized was that I was pretty much just focused on kind of me, me, me. Do you remember that clip in Finding Nemo? You got to visualize it, where the seagulls are yelling, "Mine, mine, mine." Mate, mate. Uh, what's that? Mate. Well, I think they're saying "mine" over and over. You know, they're just. Well, one time I was on the uh, Cedar Island ferry. You know, that really long ferry on Outer Banks, and I threw a bag of Cheetos in a lady's car that I didn't like. Can you imagine what happened? Like all the seagulls yelled, "Mine, mine, mine!" It went and ate the Cheetos. She was a Yankee. It was okay. Um, so. That is sort of what I was doing, right? I was just kind of yelling, mine, 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 grabbing the Cheetos, grabbing whatever I wanted. And, um, and it left me really kind of what's the point. And so Tara and I were sitting on the banks of the river in Southport on our anniversary. We just had lunch or dinner or something. And um, I looked over her, and I, I, was, I just thought, I'm miserable. Like, I've got everything I ever wanted, and I just hate this. And what's going on? And... Um, I realized what I'd done is gotten slowly, like Paul talks about that fence, 
you remember that fence story how he talks about that? You get a little off, and it gets over and over. I got a little off. It kept getting worse and worse, uh, and to the point where it just created kind of misery. And uh, so we corrected after that. We sold the house and sold the boat and moved into a house. And, um, and I'll tell you, the happiness quotient has gone way up since we've done that. So, but it was a, a correction. So why that's important is when I read Nehemiah, this guy who was our model for leadership looks like he had the a same correction. He had a similar struggle, which I'd never seen before. And I checked the commentaries, and everybody agrees he corrected, so it's not just me seeing this. But um, where it starts is in 510, and this is after, you remember, Nehemiah has fought off the external, uh, you know, the people trying to attack them physically, kind of the bandits. He'd fought off this external threat and the internal threats of the people kind of rebelling. So he had he conquered all this, and then it gets this passage, and it's, it's kind of cryptic, but what he says in 510 is this. He said, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exactment of interest. So again, he says, I, I, Nehemiah, and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exactment of interest. So what had happened here is the people were spending all their time building this wall. So they weren't going to work every day. It's like you and I. If somebody says, hey, go up behind your house and build a wall. Well, I'm not going to work. You know, I'm not planting. I'm not reaping. Uh, so I don't have enough food and money for my family. So eventually I run out of savings. So what do you do then? You go and try to borrow money from somebody. Well, Nehemiah saw this need and somehow inside said, I can make a little something for myself. Maybe there's nothing wrong in that, but what happened was his heart got twisted a little bit, I think. And he says, man, we got to abandon this. Kind of like me sitting on the banks of Southport. And I just said, man, we've gotten a little twisted here, Tara. We've got to abandon this. So then this next part in 514 is his transition the other direction. You know, he was heading towards the shoal in a boat, and he yanked the wheel to the right, and he's saying, here's the direction I'm going now. And so we're going to read this together, and then there's some really good stuff in here, really good points he makes about how he turned and what his life looks like now, um, which were super helpful for me. All right, so chapter um, 5, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So he was the governor, and he was entitled this food allowance. That's how this worked. And so the people were supposed to take care of their governor so the king didn't have to, primarily. Um, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. All right, so he made this mistake. He sort of used the people for his gain, and here he's correcting it. In your Bible, this might be called Nehemiah's generosity, which sometimes those aren't aptly named, but this one is. Um, because what he ultimately does now is put um, him or the people before himself. He put the people's needs before himself. Um, he had been saying, mine, 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 on some level, like these seagulls in Finding Nemo. And he said, I need to look around and see who else needs this besides me. So that's the big change. To do that takes a couple of things, to put your self below others, put others for yourself. The first thing you see here is that you got to highly value people and relationships. Um, and this is tough for a lot of us guys because sometimes we, um, we just want to get it done, right? And you just want to kind of move forward and you want people to act like machines. I remember sometime, one time along, well, 10 years ago probably, I had this guy that was helping me. And I remember one time thinking, if he could just do the same thing every time like a computer, like a machine that's stamping parts, you know, wouldn't this be easy if he would just, you know, do this thing? Um, I think sometimes we get in that mindset that people are machines, but, but they aren't. You know, there's something more important here. Uh, and relationships with in our faith are really important because they're the only things we're going to take to eternity. Like all this stuff we see and the house we have and the money we have and all these things you're, are going to stay here. But you're going to know the people you know in heaven. And so all these guys that you form relationships with or people you form relationships with, you're going to still have those relationships forever. And so they're the thing you take with us into eternity. And so we got to invest in those relationships of the people we lead. You can't lead without that relationship. God himself knew this. Like, God himself is relationship. I mean, you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Great mystery, right, of the Trinity. How can the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be one person? Somehow he in himself is in relationship, in this close, tight family relationship with these people. So that's what we're called to do is to somehow be in relationship. Um, if we don't do this, if we isolate ourselves, we end up selfish. Proverbs 18.1 says this. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. If it's just you, of course you're going to start to do whatever you want to do and is best for you. But Proverbs 18.1 and 2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. So eventually you turn into a fool if you isolate yourself too. That takes no pleasure in understanding. That's not where we want to be. Right, And so if we want to avoid that trap of um, becoming a fool, becoming selfish, we have to stay connected to this community and value relationships and value people. Um, and that's part of the equation. All right? The other reality is we live in a culture that doesn't always value people. It's usually going to value possessions on some sort or position, what people think of you, what you have. I mean, the gods of this age are Mark Zuckerberg, 
right? Because he's got a, lot, a high position and he's got a lot of wealth. You know, Steve Jobs or whoever your thing is, that's the people we, our world kind of honors today. And so somehow we've got to push that down lower. I want to start by saying stuff isn't bad. Like money is amoral. Your house is amoral. It's not bad in itself. I mean, we need a certain amount of stuff. Um, money and possessions in the Word of God are often rewards, right? Psalm 112 says that um, if you trust God, your children will be mighty in the land. You'll have no fear of bad news. You'll be a lender, not a borrower. So it paints a picture of a guy who's, who's got plenty. You know, he's fairly wealthy, it seems like. Solomon, rewarded for his faith in God by having a lot of possessions. He was trusted with a lot. And so Solomon was obviously a good guy. We don't want to belittle him here. Um, and so you can have a lot or have a little and still be in a right relationship with God. It's really about your, your heart in these things. Um, but the, I think the key to getting these things in right order, right, of getting, uh, you know, people first and then possessions way down the list is really your view of eternity, okay? So it's how you feel like this is going to work out. Um, and we, we'll talk a little more about that but, and in the next point. But when you start to take possessions and kind of push them down the list, when you start to devalue them, and I ran into that, right? When we sold our house and, you know, I had all three of my kids in one room, you know, in this next house. So it was, you look around and you're like, man, what kind of father am I, you know? Turns out my three boys love each other a lot more than they would have otherwise, I think, because they were stuck together. But um, when you start to do this, you do start to get anxious on some level. You start to think, man, have I saved enough, you know? Should I be kind of hoarding more here so that I can make sure any possible thing that happens in the future is taken care of with my kids? You know, are we going to have enough next month? You start to be anxious when you start to give things away like that. And I love how God knows us so well. He made us. He knows what we're going to run into, and he addresses it. So Matthew 6, he says this. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not a more value than they? So who in here thinks you're worth more than a sparrow? Raise your hand. It's like we're in school. So if he clothes the sparrow and feeds them somehow the dead of winter, all right, we occasionally snows here. Where I grew up, it snowed more. But um, somehow these birds figure out how to eat when the snow's on the ground for two weeks. If he can do that, He's certainly going to take care of you. You're made in his image. That's what he's saying here. So when you start to lowly value possessions, you also need to accompany that with the confidence that the Lord is going to take care of whatever you may need. Sense so far? Um, so again, put others before yourself. Key to generosity. The key to that is highly value people, lowly value possessions and positions. Um, this next one is sort of the big caveat, right? You, you, you know, all this seems well and good. Um, I want to be generous. I want to follow Nehemiah's example. But there is usually a sacrifice required here. 
uh, Nehemiah had it. Yeah, I remember Nehemiah didn't, he had a relatively high, uh, the, the cupbearer was a re relatively high position in the bureaucracy, but it wasn't one that generated a lot of wealth. Some of these positions, particularly if you were like a commander of a military unit, you would end up with a lot of wealth because of it. The cupbearer wasn't one of those. So he personally probably didn't have a tremendous amount. He was now the governor of a region. This is the, the, he was climbing the ladder. So the temptation for him would be, well, let me set myself up so that I can have something in life. Yeah, I can have a piece of something. He had to give that up, guys. You know, he says he gave it up. He says, I didn't acquire land. That was the wealth of the time, right? He could have. The um, tribute I was due as the governor, I didn't take. In fact, I, out of my own expense, whatever we had, I guess the king had given him some, I took care of 150 people every day. So not only was he not gaining, he was probably losing in the process. Too. So he had to give that up. I mean, in our life, I had to give up the idea my kids were going to have their own room. And a few times I looked at three sweaty boys in that room and said, hey, what you know, I don't know about this. Turns out it worked. But, um, you know, there's some things you sort of give up along the way. That's the caveat. Here's the good news, though. Um, this act of giving up your time, your treasure, your talent, whatever you're generous with here, um, produces an immediate reward in your life. This is kind of blows your mind that being generous with what we have and giving it away it immediately produces this reward. It produces a reward of happiness. And this is where I want to camp out a minute. This is where we could spend the whole time. But um, maybe two or three years ago, I, I learned something about the word blessed in Scripture that changed really everything when I'm reading it. And I just want to share that because this helps you understand how generosity breeds happiness. Um, so one of the, the verses I know you guys all know is Acts 20, 35. It's, it's more blessed to give than receive. So have you guys heard that before? Even if you're not a Christian, you probably heard that. Sometime around Christmas when your kid doesn't get what he wanted, you say, it's more blessed to give than receive, right? Well, it's got that word blessed in there. Here's another passage in Luke that talks about being blessed from generosity. It says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid by the resurrection of the just. All right, so we've got that word blessed in there, which outside of church do you ever hear? Has anybody ever heard somebody outside of the Christian context use the word blessed? Probably not. That word only has meaning pretty much within these walls, within this community. When the King James was written, blessed was the word for happy. It was just, hey, man, we had a blessed time at Disney World. All right, are you feeling blessed today, son? Why are you not blessed? Why are you not blessed? You could say it either way. Um, it was the vernacular. And we've carried this word all throughout the centuries because people thought there should be something different between Christian happiness and the world's happiness. The reality is there's about six words used for happiness in Scripture. In the New Testament, it's primarily one. That word is makairos, and I'm going to read. I wrote down some of the, so you know it's not just me. These are the learned guys who went to school for like 100 years. 
This is the exegetical dictionary says it means happy and blessed. G.W. Knight says the term makairos itself means happy and therefore designates God as containing all happiness in himself and bestowing it on men. The term blessed indicates supreme happiness. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. We could, I've got a whole list. I'm not going to read them all. But you get the point here. When you see happy, or when you see blessed or blessed, just substitute happy in there. It's the literal translation. There's a couple old, old, old translations that predate King James that just used the word happy or something similar to that for it. And this even the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are the meek, is happy are the meek, happy are the peacemakers. That's the literal way you can read it. And so that changes everything. So let's read this verse again now. It says, it is more happy to give than receive. Specifically, you'll get more of God's happiness if you give than you receive. Well, it's okay to want happiness, right? Augustine said that every man desires happiness. Even the man who commits suicide wants happiness because he's trying to get away from some pain into a happier place. So we are wired to want this thing called happiness. Um, there's a book that Randy Alcorn wrote called Happiness that if you guys are interested in that more, you ought to read. It is one of those game changers. It really is. Um, and so we do have this reward right here on earth of happiness, which we get to experience. And that's something that when we made this change, there was a period of... Um, it was probably some loss, you know, moving out of your dream house, you know, losing some things. And I, there was probably some sadness in there at some level, but it was short-lived, man. And the happiness quotient started to go through the roof because we had time to spend a relationship with the boys, time to form relationships with others. I wasn't having to work 24-7. Um, and I can just vouch for the fact that that happiness has gone way up. Um, and I think you will too if you're willing to make the little sacrifice to move forward in that. Um, the other awesome thing about generosity is that it generates a return right now, so an immediate return, but it also generates a return for all eternity. So how would you like it if you could buy the stock that like, you know, paid you a dividend right now this is the one you always want, right? It pays a dividend each month right now. And then also it's going to be a hundred times, you know, worth a hundred times more in 10 years. That's the perfect stock, right? This is the perfect investment of our lives because it has a return right now in our happiness, true happiness in our lives. But also there's this idea that there's a reward for it in heaven. This passage in Matthew is called the treasure principle. And then incidentally, Randy Alcorn wrote a book about this too. He read as a church about 10 years ago, right when I was making that change in my life. And that verse is uh, Matthew 6, 19. It's, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Raise your hand if you heard that verse before. Most of you have. Um, I think everybody in here probably has a car and a house that they live in and probably some other things that the longer you have them, the, the worse shape they're in, right? Your car's paint eventually peels off. The wood on your house rots. The 
paint peels off, the tile cracks, whatever it is. All these things we have degrade. That's what it says. It says everything you store up here is just going to degrade. My wife's parents, um, I saw a really plain picture of this recently. My wife's parents built their dream house, right? Um, and it was, he's a builder. That's his job. So it was, I mean, it was in Southern living. It, it was his art, you think of as a builder. Well, they didn't stay there. They moved and had it for sale. These people bought this dream house, and he'd been keeping it up for years. He had renovated it. He was, you know, this was his crowning achievement to his life's work in some ways. They bought the house, and they're tearing it down and building another one. And we went up there to see it and walking through, and it is beautiful. I mean, it's got like three layers of crown molding, custom carved stuff, because this was his art, you know. And they're going to tear this thing down and build something else. Well, that's going to happen for all of us. Because that lot where that house was, somebody else lived there 300 years ago, I bet. And there was probably an Indian settlement a couple hundred years before that. You know, everywhere, that, no matter where you live, somebody's probably lived there before you, had their dream home right there, and now it doesn't exist. That was the <laughs> most direct picture I've ever seen of this idea that nothing's going to last that we store up. Not even your dream home. Not even your art. Not even this perfect thing. So if you want to store something that's going to matter, store up generosity. All right, because this somehow, and I don't know what this treasure is going to look like in heaven. I've got some ideas, but somehow there's a reward in heaven for generosity. And we enjoy that forever. You know, yeah, it's fun to live in a nice house here and I like driving a nice car as much as the next guy, and boats are awesome. But, um, you know, they're not going to last forever, especially boats. If you have one of those, they go downhill fast. <laughs> you know, it's just part of it. At least mine does. I don't take care of it. But, um, but I don't want to get too hung up because it's easy to get hung up on this being about money too. That's the other thing. When you, when you hear the word generosity, immediately you think, they want me to give to missions or the homeless or your, you know, your slack uncle who hadn't had a job in seven years or whatever the generosity thing is. Like, that's what you have in your head. I think that's a pretty small sliver of it. Um, I had a friend, Benny Matthews, he, he's actually come speak here before, who says you need to give of your time, your treasure, and your talent. So that was a pretty good summary, all right? Your time your treasure, your money, your wealth, yeah, and then your talent, your abilities. The problem, though, is if you have a lot of stuff, you end up having to work a lot to take care of it. That's why stuff can get in the way of this, right? You spend a lot of time taking care of your car and waxing it, making it look nice, you know. Spend a lot of treasure on it. Um, and you do spend your talent to go to work so that you can make more money to pay for more stuff or pay the insurance on the stuff you have or Whatever. And so if you, if you get distracted, it strains your time, your treasure, and talent to the point you don't have any left to give. All right. And so that's, that's the key. That's where possessions can circumvent this. But let's kind of paint a picture what this might look like to give of time, treasure, and talent. Okay, so like time. What about, like my wife is a, her love language is really time. She didn't really want gifts. She just wants me to hang out with her. It took me like 20 years to figure that out, but I'm, I'm there now. Before her birthday, I went out to her, don't make fun of me, guys, and I got a massage, which was my second in my life and was pretty awesome, you know. 
And so it went out, got a massage, it had lunch, and you would have thought that I had spent $100,000 on her. I, I mean, I could have bought her a new Mercedes-Benz, she wouldn't have been any happier, right? Because I spent some time. What about when your kid wants to go and build something in the garage when you've got eight other things to do? Or your daughter wants to go, and I don't know what girls do, maybe drink tea, I don't, I don't really know. But whatever daughters want to do, and you got stuff to do, and you go and say, no, you know, I'm not going to do the stuff. I'm going to go take the time and drink tea with my daughter. Whatever the thing is. Um, because if you're so wrapped up in taking care of business and generating whatever you got to generate, take care of all this stuff, it's like your time. You, it's so hard to rip it away to do these things. What about uh, treasures? A little easier. You know, that might be... It might be given to missions. It might be given to the homeless. It might be having the money in the bank that when you've got a family member who needs it, you can help them. My, my mom needed it one time. My parents got divorced and went through a hard time. And um, so you might have to be generous to your parents. I don't know what that looks like, but um, you know, there, there's your treasure piece. The talent one, though, is one I think a lot of guys overlook. So I kind of wanted to dwell on that one a minute is I'm looking around I know a lot of you guys in here and we're really good at stuff I mean really good at stuff um, and I know some of you what that stuff is and there's a whole bunch of young men in this church and in our community who were coming out of UNCW or coming out of high school or coming out of Cape Fear and they just want a guy who's good at stuff to help them be good at stuff too yeah. so what if you took some time and helped some kid out Passed on what you know to that kid. Whether it's building a house, figuring out a financing, running a business, um, taking care of somebody in medicine, whatever that thing is, what if you took your talent and bestowed it on somebody else? And I've had, this um, guy in our church was writing a business plan for one of his entrepreneurship classes. He called me up, and we, we've had a relationship, and he said, hey, can you come and look at this business plan? I had a great, I mean, it, sometimes it's fun. Like, he had this great idea, and we're working through it. He ended up winning his, um, his class competition. He's going on to Encino to pitch it to them or something, um, or, or Tech Mountain, excuse me. Um, but that was, it's fun for me, too. I got a lot of happiness out of it. Uh, now, he did, his business plan was not good because anything I said, it was good. It was already good. I didn't want to overstate my abilities there. But, um, but I know all you guys can do something like that. Um, you might have one of those jobs that you can directly benefit somebody. You know, you might have, be a doctor. Maybe you're an IT guy, and you can help fix the computers at First Street. You know, like we, we know a little bit about communication, so you try to help out a nonprofit with their communications. Wh whatever that thing is, you can sometimes directly use your talent to help others, and that's an awesome place to be. I doubt if you'll ever feel more joy in your job and what you do than when you're using it to help somebody else. Yeah. Um, now, we've said all this. We've talked about generosity, but this is supposed to be about leadership, right? And so you might be going, well, what does this all have to do with being a leader? Here's how I'd start with that. Is think about all the leaders that you most admire in life. I made my list, I did this a week or two ago, of the leaders I most admired. One of them was Martin Luther King, 
It's probably because of what's been going on, you know, the anniversary and him being in Wilmington, been on my mind. The courage that that man had, I admired. Lincoln, because he led a country in probably our darkest hour and did it with supreme integrity, in my mind. Um, and then Bill Gates, actually, because I kind of grew up in business when he was on the rise. And, um, you know, seeing how he's living his life now is pretty incredible. I've got a few quotes for my three, and I bet you know something about your three, and I want you to see the commonality. Martin Luther King said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That's like the whole message of this passage in Nehemiah. What are you doing for others? He says, that's the most persistent and urgent question you can ask yourself. What are you doing for others? Must have been a generous guy. Um, This is what he said just a few days before his death. And I heard him say this on the radio, and it gave me cold chills. I wish I had that good throaty Martha King voice, but I can't. Um, Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. It's almost like he knew he was going to get killed. He says, I might not get there with you. So here's a guy who's going to be generous with his life, like his physical life, in order for people who have been pressed down for centuries to rise up and get to the promised land. Generous guy. People followed him. Um, Lincoln. I was looking for a, I'd, I'd read a generosity quote on Lincoln, and I was trying to find the reference to it. I kind of knew it in my head. You know what his new autobiography is titled? This came out in 2014, I think. Here's the title. A Just and Generous Nation, Abraham Lincoln and the Fight for American Opportunity. The whole book was about his generosity. Literally, his new 2014 biography is about his generosity and how he gave himself for the nation. Amazing. That's the story of his life, his generosity. Bill Gates. This guy was the richest man the world had ever known from 1995 to 2009, almost 15 years, the richest man in the world. You know what his title is now? He's still the number one at something. Anybody got a guess? The most generous person the world has ever known. He's given more money away than anybody else in the history of the world through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He seems like a happy guy, too, when you see him. but took a distinction of being the wealthiest guy to now the most generous guy in the world. I read at some point that if you took, if he hadn't given that money away, he would have as much money as the next six people on the list combined. That includes all the Waltons. Incredible. But he chose, he said, I don't even know if he's a believer. I really don't. I I probably should have looked into that. But he somehow looked at this and said, this wealth is not going to bring me anything. But if I give it away... I'm going to get something. Even the non-Christian gets joy in giving. I mean, that's just a law of nature, right? But as a Christian, us giving, we get this eternal reward too. It's Bill Gates there. Um, Why that's important is people don't follow selfish leaders. They follow generous leaders. You may have a military leader at some point who leads out of fear, because he's got supreme authority. You may have a tyrant 
Um, there's exceptions to this, but in a free country, people generally don't follow somebody who's only thinking about themselves. Not for very long, at least. And that's what Nehemiah was running into, too. Those people looked at Nehemiah and said, we followed you into building this, and you're charging us interest? I wonder if that didn't have something to do with why he had some internal conflict with the people. I would think the people were going, I don't know if I'm going to put this center block on my wall today. If this guy's charging me interest, I think I'm going to go out and get, get my piece. Um, and then he corrected, and we saw how he corrected himself, and it's like all the people just swelled behind him again, and they finished the task. Um, so his ability to lead was directly related to his level of generosity to the people he was leading. And that's just a fact. Um, I'm actually going to, there's a great quote up here. Great leadership is getting people to do what you want, not do what you say which is what he was able to do because he's generous. But I wanted to end on this quote from Zig Ziglar. Anybody know who he is? Zig Ziglar? All right. He's one of those, like John Maxwell. You know, everybody wants to quote John Maxwell and Zig Ziglar. But this, uh, I got in my office, says this all the time, and I love it. It's, you can have everything in life you want if you would just help other people get what they want. Sometimes a guy just says it well and says it concise. So that's the summary. You can have everything in life that you want if you would just help other people get what they want. We're going to take 10 or 15 minutes and we some questions up on the screen. Matt, if you don't mind flipping over to those. And I uh, encourage you to talk through those with your group. Um, you know, and you, hopefully we know each other well enough to get a little real here. Um, my hope is that in the end, you might come away with some ways that you can be generous in your life and those you lead. We'll take 10 or 15 minutes. Groups of what? Three or four, usually says. Awesome.